This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with British Columbia's fall vaccine rollout, COVID booster shots now available. How can you you get your shot? Let's discuss now with BC's Health Minister, Adrian Dix. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Minister, thank you for coming on. Great to be on the show, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk COVID. Let's start with the booster shots right now. So how for so for people who are listening right now and they say, oh man, I want to get this booster shot. How do they do that? Do they have to wait for the invite? They got to wait for the invite, and it's coming. Uh, so far, one million seven hundred forty thousand invitations have been sent out. We send out about one hundred forty-seven thousand a day, uh, and we do it in order of clinically vulnerable, and then essentially by age. Right, so um, uh, just about everybody over sixty-five should have received them already, or uh, as well as about the two hundred fifty thousand people in BC who are defined as clinically vulnerable. Uh, obviously, we're doing it directly in long-term care and so on. To date, um, and we're talking about the flu and COVID-19 here, about 376,000 uh, vaccines have been administered, more for the flu than for COVID right now, but that's there's some technical reasons for that. But um, it's, uh, it's going well so far, and we've had a, a good uptake, but we really encourage people to get vaccinated. Okay, I, I know you're familiar with there have been some criticism of the rollout, some people saying it's confusing. Maybe we should just have a, you know, a wide open free for all walk in. You can walk into any pharmacy and, and get a, a, shot, a booster shot on demand. So let me play a clip here for you, Minister, get your thoughts. Sanjeev Gandhi, the deputy leader of the BC Green Party, has been speaking out on this. Here's what he had to say, then we'll get your thoughts. The vaccine rollout should be as simple as possible. The vaccination system is cumbersome. The invitation system shouldn't be necessary and is confusing for many. Yeah, so he says that you should just be able to do a walk-in to your local pharmacy and ask for the COVID booster shot. What do you say to him? Well, uh, this system has worked very well for us. We've had probably the most efficient COVID-19 vaccination response. We have appointments uh, for pharmacists now, as you know, for minor ailments. We have appointments in doctor's offices. Some people might argue it'd be better to have a free-for-all for everything, but we have appointments. The reason we have appointments is it's good for you. You know when you'll get the vaccine, and it's good to uh, for the organization the system. We're distributing vaccine to 1,200 pharmacies, COVID-19, influenza yeah. to 1,300 pharmacies. So to have an appointment system means you can do... Uh, uh, what uh, what uh, what I did, which is book an appointment at five o'clock on a particular day and go and get it, and uh, that system's worked well for us. And having a free for all uh, would be much more confusing and disorganized. And uh, so the reason the system's been set up, and it's a good system, and I'll tell you why it's a good system, because we we spent the time to put in place a very good system, which is now the basis for 
for example, for booking an appointment with your pharmacist for minor ailments. So when you, once you put such a system in place, you can use it for other things, and that's what we've done. And I think uh, the, the, the people in the hundreds of thousands who have benefited from the expansion and scope of practice for pharmacists would agree. Okay, Minister, let me play a clip here for you from a guest I had on the show last week, and I, I suspect you've heard, heard about this. This is the Mayor of Merritt, Mike Getz, very unhappy that his local hospital emergency room has been shut down so frequently this year. When I spoke to him last week, he said that the ER had been shut down 16 times this year. And he says, you know what, if, if we're not getting the service that's been promised from the health ministry, you're the minister, that guess what, they're, not go- they're going to withhold their tax payments to the provincial government. Here's what he had to say to me last week, minister, I'll get your thoughts. Mike Getz, the mayor of Merritt here. Next year, when we calculate our tax for 2024, where we hand in our remittance, we're going to be pulling out every single day that we didn't get service. So if we go 20 days before this year's over, that's how many days we'll pull out, and we're not going to pay for that service because we never got it. Do you really want to be the province that says, hey, you know what? Um, yeah, we didn't give you the service, but we're going to take the money anyway, and we expect you just to pay it and be quiet about it, especially coming into an election year. I don't think that's the route you want to take. Minister, what do you say to him? Well, you know, I, I got lots of respect for Mayor Getz. I've talked to him all the time about the situation in Merritt. What I can tell him, what I can tell you is we put more resources into Merritt uh, in the last few months than ever before. Every incentive program we can put in place to recruit people to Merritt. So what I'm focused on is not this kind of discussion, which I understand he's uh, he would, he's doing to highlight the issue, which is important to him, and I, I think all that is fair enough. I focus on actually dealing with the problem. Uh, you remember last year in 2022, we had an issue in Clearwater, and we did the work to solve it uh, on a permanent basis. The issue in Merritt has been in part nursing. In, the, in September, we, uh, we put in place through uh, Health Match BC three new nurses there, which is uh, which will be yeah. important to the situation in nursing. On doctors, we're working with local doctors to set up an APP because one of the what's called an alternative payment plan. Because one of the challenges in Merritt and some other communities that have emergency room problems is that it's not in the interest. Local doctors are focused on providing primary care in the community, and so Merritt is largely kept open through what are called locum doctors. We bring in from in Merritt from largely from Kamloops and Kelowna, and who do great work there and keep it open. But if it's happened a couple of weeks ago, a doctor has um, a personal issue that takes him away, and he's the one set up for that weekend. It puts and it happens relatively soon, and this can happen quite a bit. You're kind of vulnerable, so we're um, but, looking not just for short-term solutions, but for permanent yeah. solutions. That's what I'm okay. focused on, and 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 uh, not not a kind of a, a debate where people are saying this and that and this and that and this is going to happen. We need to solve these problems, and that's what I'm working to do. But he said that the emergency room. When I spoke to him last week, it's been 16 times this year. Who knows? Maybe it's been shut down again since then. And he says, "Look, we are not." getting the service that we're paying for it, so we're not going to pay you. I'm, we're going to withhold our taxes to the provincial government. Would you encourage him not to do that? He says he's asking other municipalities to do the same thing, and like a tax revolt against your government. What do you say to that? Well, I'd say that the issue is improving health care. And in the last year, just this calendar year, 2023, we've added net new 5,221 nurses to the system. Yeah. We have in the health care system uh, very significant increases we see everywhere else in days lost um, due to illness. In the average week, that goes from 9,000, has gone from about 9,000 a week pre-COVID to 15,000. There's a couple of important reasons for that, including 
the important fact of COVID-19, the fact that people have to stay home or sick, we're massively responding with a health human resources campaign that's unprecedented in its resources. So uh, if you're asking, are we spending money in merit? Are we spending more money in merit because of the actions we're taking? The answer is yes. We're doing it because Merritt's a very important hospital. The Nicola Valley Hospital is a very important hospital. So my job as Minister of Health, not to focus on this political debate back and forth, but to, to work to ensure that we have long-term solutions for communities. And that's exactly what we're doing. Speaking of BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, let me ask you about one more here, Minister, while I have you. Victoria resident Tracy Porteous. She was on a wait list for hip replacement surgery. She said she was in severe pain decided to go to a private clinic in Alberta. She paid $34,000 for a private hip replacement surgery. And she said when she was at that, this private hospital, this private clinic in Calgary, she wasn't alone. Have a listen to what she says. You're talking to CTV here. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. So it's a small clinic with two very state-of-the-art uh, operating rooms. And so there were eight of us that came up that day, and half of us were from British Columbia. What, what would you say to people who are thinking of doing this, going out of province, paying for private surgery when they're on a wait list here? Well, we released the detailed surgical renewal response of the province. You'll recall that we had to essentially delay 30,000 surgeries in April and May of 2020. We've added uh, hundreds of surgical nurses, about 100 anesthesiologists, uh, numerous medical processing technicians. We reduced the wait list during the pandemic, which is an enormous achievement, Mike. Of course, if you're waiting for surgery, of course, if you're waiting for surgery, uh, one day feels like too long, right? Yeah. And But we have, in the summer of this year, um, shattered all of the previous records for surgeries in the public system. And have uh, and have reduced wait time. We've gone from the bottom of the country under the Liberals, what, and they're calling themselves something else now, BC United, and uh, and uh, to near the top in important surgical categories. And one of those key categories are people who wait too long for hip and knee replacements. But I understand if you're waiting, it may be too long. It may feel like too long, and that's why. And you would. And your, what would your advice so be to someone? To Just keep keep waiting in pain. Is uh, my 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 job is to reduce those wait times, and that's what we've done. And the evidence for that is not just national evidence, but it's provincial evidence. We've added this year 13,000, so far this year, January to August, so this is only part of the year, 13,000 operating room hours to reduce that, to reduce um, people's wait time for surgeries. We've focused on people who are waiting too long for surgeries below clinical guidelines. And our surgeons and our operating room nurses, it makes it sound like it's a government thing, have done an exceptional job under these circumstances. I mean, the performance in July and August was breathtaking. I agree uh, with anybody who waits too long. That's the reason why I've been so focused on this for so long. I mean, we were doing 170,000 MRI exams, which are often needed before surgery, right? You need the MRI to get the surgery, right? Uh, When I became Minister of Health, we're doing more than 300,000 today. It's a staggering okay. increase. Every one of them requires significant health input, right? So th- this is what we're doing. And I think uh, my job is to uh, reduce wait times in the public system, and that's what we've been doing. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Hey, anytime. I look, to, look forward to doing it soon. Maybe, maybe together one day. Maybe we'll take some calls. Hey, come on. In. That'd be great. Let's set that up.
Let's talk about family law in British Columbia. This is always interesting, evolving and changing in our province. There's been some recent changes in BC, division of assets. We're talking child custody. How about the family pet? The family breaks up. Who gets to keep the dog? Let's discuss with my guest, Scott Taylor. Scott is a family lawyer, Taylor Law Group. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming on today. Well, hello, Mike. And, and do you have a pet? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. What do you you, you have, dog, cat, both? Yeah, we got a a 16-year-old dog. She's hanging in there. She's she's slowing down, but she's hanging in. Well, you you know what? There's some legislation, really intriguing legislation that the province is thinking about introducing for people who own pets. But more importantly, what happens when those couples separate? Who gets to keep Rover? Yeah. uh, And I think the legislators who were probably mostly pet owners, thought, you know what, it's time we don't consider Rover like a piece of furniture, like a dining room table. Let's make some changes. So what, how does it work now, and what would, how would the changes work? Okay, well, right now, okay, and again, I should say that most of the time, people that are separating can decide things between themselves as to sometimes property, sometimes even children, but sometimes... The beloved family pet is the most important emotional uh, uh, feature that, that there's fighting around. Yeah. Like, who gets to keep Rover? Now, again, nothing prevents people who have a pet that are separating from saying, you know what, Let's, you keep Rover one week, I'll keep Rover the second week, and they can work out their own arrangements. But in some really fiercely, hotly contested family issues... They, they can't decide. So then it's left up to, well, then how do we decide who keeps Rover? Well, yeah. what, this, is, what, this is what courts have done in the past. And it's really, it's considering Rover like, like a couch. He's a family asset. And so how do we decide who gets to keep Rover? Well, typically what happens, and this is what's happened for years, is, okay, who paid for Rover? Okay, which, which of you paid for Rover? Now, who pays for Rover's vet bills? Okay, did, who paid? You paid? Did you pay? Who pays for Rover's food? So it essentially came down to just a purely, a purely financial issue. Basically, right. that whoever paid the most for Rover, okay, you get to keep Rover. That's how, it, that's how it used to be. But over time, because Rover is a living, breathing, much-loved creature, particularly if there's children... It, it just didn't seem, doesn't seem to most people, why would Rover simply be akin to deciding who keeps the kitchen table or the, the TV? Yeah. So, so they decided, let's make some changes. Right, so how do they do it now? Well, well, well it's still the old way because they haven't, there's been no royal assent <clears throat> to the proposed changes. But this is, what yeah. the, this is what the government is proposing. Okay, we're not going to do it the old way. We're going to introduce... A new way. Okay, everyone's going, okay, what's, what's the new way? And what's fascinating about this, what's really, really fascinating is when courts make decisions about children, they, they look at detailed situations and, and factors about the children's relationship with other people, with the parents. And when you're determining what the best interest of a child is, yeah. You look at relationships between you know, the child and the parent, the child and some other people, their relationship with the parent, on and on. That's how you decide the best interests of a child, where a child lives. Well, what the, what the legislation 
seems to be doing or appears to be doing is we're going to use some of those same factors in deciding what's in Rover's best interest. Yes, all right. In other words, let's look at Rover's relationship with with, with with its owners. Let's look at Rover's relationship with the children and the children's relationship with Rover. So it, it changes absolutely. The, the dynamic absolutely changes as to who gets to keep Rover. So that's that's what's happening. Very interesting. That's one to keep an eye on for sure. Speaking to family lawyer Scott Taylor. Hey, Scott, here's another story that jumped out at me. Yeah. Man, when people break up, yeah, things oh. can get nasty, especially if there's a lot of money on the line. So yeah. here, this headline in the Vancouver Sun, Vancouver man sues his ex-girlfriend for $61,000, alleging she failed to repay a loan. So this is quite quite sad. And so she borrowed, it started with $20,000, yeah. then yeah. she borrowed another twenty five grand. Yeah. then she borrowed another 15000 This yeah. was to help a, a sick mom, according to the yeah. lawsuit. Now, he's now suing to get the money back. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. They were only together... For six months, and then they broke up. Does he have a leg to stand on here? Well, well, you know, it's going it's, it's to come down. It's going to come down to the evidence. Like, was it intended as a was it intended as a gift? Was it intended as a repayable loan? Um, because they're not considered to be they're not common law couples. You have to be to be common law. You have to be together in a marriage like relationship for a period, a uh, successive period of two years or more. Two so years, it, it, right. Two years. So it's outside the realm of what what is considered to be spouses in family law. But right. it's a situation where you're loaning somebody money, and there is no paperwork, apparently, to, to substantiate what was borrowed, the reasons for the borrowing, or, or if it was going to get paid back. So you hear of these, like a romance scam, where somebody just keeps borrowing money from someone on the assumption that maybe there is going to be a romance or that there's some, some potential future romance. And they yeah. keep sending money. So if, if my advice, and it's a pretty basic advice, is if, if you're in a situation and you're being asked to send somebody money, um, it at least get something, whether it's a promissory note or something in writing, that it's going to be repaid. But the other thing my, people have to keep in mind, even if you have a piece of paper that says, you're going to pay me this with interest, without interest, uh, you know, whatever, if they don't have the money to pay you back, or if they're some in some international com- you know country out- outside of our own, the chance of repayment is, I think, is virtually nil. Yeah, yeah. And speaking I mean, of those online romance scams, boy, these are kind of heartbreaking, and we hear yeah. a lot about these now. Let's have a listen to this report. This is from Global News, Scott, and this yeah. is a case of a a Calgary. A Calgary man who was dating a lot of different women on dating apps and scamming a lot of them, too. Have a listen to this report. This is from Global News. We had an amazing conversation. Blair Wortley was just looking for a connection. Seemed to have a lot of the same interests. But the single mom says Brian Serrata was just a Romeo looking to woo unsuspecting women. I'm very lucky. I by no means... Um, was affected nearly as much as other people were. It came to light earlier on in the fall last year that he had been dating women uh, over mobile dating apps, several women all at once, and had actually defrauded two of them doing the same scam. Yeah, so, you know, this is an online Romeo 
romance gone wrong. And guess what? It's just a scam. We've seen well, a similar well, and, one and, in and, Victoria. And, Go ahead, Scott. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the, some of the issues are the police aren't typically going to get involved. I don't believe. I mean, they've got they've got so many other things to to, to do with their time, so they're not going to be. They're not going to be pressing charges uh, against these individuals. So it's just a question of, well, am I going to get my money back? And 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 that's that's really the, the issue. And you don't have any paperwork to support that. And and so basically, you are sending your money with no expectation of having it returned. And these wrote that you know, dating several people online, you do not have any kind of support in family law because you're not you're certainly not in a common law relationship. This is all right. online, so it, it just it just makes it really makes good sense if if you feel so committed to an individual to give them money, you need to have some some boundaries with respect to to doing it before you not after the fact, but before you do it. And, and chances you know chances are even if they do sign something that you send them, how do you enforce it? In the, how do you enforce okay. it in the in the first place? Okay, Scott, let me ask you this real quick, and then we sure. will fit in a break here and take some phone calls. Sure. Prenuptial agreements. Do you think a prenup is a good idea? And I was actually speaking to <laughs> yeah. a mom. I guess yeah. she was worried about her son getting into a relationship and was pressuring the son <laughs> yeah. to get a prenup because I guess yeah. they've got a lot of money. Your thoughts? Oh, you know what? You know what, Mike? It is so typical when, when a young couple starts a relationship, begins a relationship. It is more often the parents of one of these individuals starting this relationship that says, "Hey, wait a minute, not so fast. Let's let's get you. Let's put a, a put a prenup together first in the event of separation. Again, separation and divorce, Mike. It, it's half of relations, half or more of relationships end up breaking up. So the parents want to protect not only well, not only is it the inheritance, and again, inheritance in British Columbia is considered excluded." property. So that is something that can be protected. But if that property appreciates in value, then the other party is entitled to a half interest in the appreciation. So you might have a short relationship where your son is involved with a woman. They, your, your son receives an inheritance and it appreciates wildly in a few years. Well, she's entitled, the other side is entitled to half of an increase in that property. So having a, having a prenup Protect you know whether you've got your parents on your your back or not, yeah. will protect what you have at the start of the relationship, and most importantly, it'll define what you end up with at the end of the relationship. Not very romantic, though, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, no, you know what? No, when I, when someone says to me, you know what, I'm I'm going to be moving in that next uh, next month, and I'd like to, and it's always good to have a prenup before the move in because that has a, has other consequences and then you say well you know what before you decide to to let her in or him in you should really have a, a prenup yeah talk about a, a romance killer this is <laughs> we're talking family law in bc with my guest scott taylor taylor law group let's go to your phone calls here Catherine in kamloops hi Catherine. go ahead Hi, yes, um, it's about the prenup, and um, they don't work, actually, because I was in a prenup when I first met my husband, and 25 or 26 years, actually it was 28, because we lived together for a couple of years, and um, he became ill, and his family was very concerned about the lake property, and they wanted to have it so that I was to be committed, had to commit to the prenup saying I had no hang, hand in anything. 
So the lawyer said, this is ridiculous. He said, you've been together for over 26 years. He said, it's null and void now. He said, you've, you've added to the property with, you know, your own um, monies and, and your own um, help with fixing things up. And when we bought a property, um, he said, you also helped with that. And, and in a nominal way, of course, because I, he had a business, I helped with the business and that type of thing. And uh, it ended up that we had to split down the middle, and that was all there was to it. So his, so his family was trying to get the whole property, is that correct? Yes. Okay, but you were able to keep your half of it. I was able to keep my home. Your home, right. Okay, okay. Thank you for sharing that. Scott, what do you think of that? Well, well, Kath, well you know, and, and that's a good, good point. But if you're in a long-term relationship and you've yeah. decided what's going to happen with property, depending on what the, the actual prenup says... It, it can be found to be valid and enforceable or not, depending on the terms. Put it this way. If the prenup says you do not have any interest in, in a piece of property and you're together for 26 years, well, then the court's going to say that's, 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 that's unfair. So what there should be in every prenup is a section that says every two years, or if there's a material change in circumstances, we're going to revisit and we're going to revise the terms if, if there are anything that is unfair or if there's been a change in circumstances, we're going to renegotiate the terms. So that's, what's, that's what's, the point of the, what's the point of the prenup then? Well, the point of the prenup is if, if you're in a common law relationship yeah. for any, again, over two years, like I said before, then basically it is like a marriage. And sure. the, the, each party is entitled to a, a half interest in any appreciation of assets that you start out with. So what you do, that, that's the law. So what you say in a prenup typically is, I am going to keep what I have on the way in, and I'm going to keep what I have on the way out regardless, regardless of how much it appreciates in value. But if, if one party ends up so disenfranchised by an agreement after you know, 25 or 30 years, the courts are going to look at it and go, it's unfair. So mm. if you're doing a prenup, there should always be a provision that says, look, if, I, I, if, if we're together for five years or more, I'm going to get this much. If we're together for 10 years, more, I'm going to get this much. But if it doesn't have some kind of an escalation or some kind of a, a provision which recognizes the contributions made by a party in a yeah. relationship, then chances are, as I say to my clients, it's, it's going to be deemed unenforceable, just like Interesting. Catherine said. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, Let's no, squeeze in one more call. Alan in Nanaimo. Alan, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Yes, uh, this was a 26-year-old uh, uh, marriage in Ontario that broke up, uh, and um, I, uh, uh, in the, the breakup agreement, uh, uh, I had to pay out half of the value of my pension uh, in cash, which I did. I subsequently retired when I was 57 years old, and uh, my ex-wife went uh, back to court, uh, and um, it ended up that uh, I had to pay uh, $850 a month uh, uh, in uh, spousal support to her. Um, and uh, so I, I uh, uh, hired a lawyer back in on Ontario to contest this and uh, thank you alan i hate to cut i hate to cut you off yeah. I, re I really do yeah but you know, we're I, just I, up I, against the clock I, you know 
That's just the that's just yeah. the sad reality. Hey, Scott, we'll just have to have you back, man. We got more calls well, coming I, I in. We'll bring you on Mike. again. L- listen, uh, you take care. Take a look at what's going on now with the drive for a national pharmacare program in Canada. So this is a program that would pay for prescription drugs for Canadians. High priority for the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Now, remember that the New Democrats have a governing deal with Justin Trudeau's Liberals. So the NDP effectively keeping Trudeau in power here with their confidence and supply agreement, which is still in place. Very interesting development on the weekend as members of the NDP voted at their convention to pull the plug on this agreement with the Liberals if the Liberals do not make good on a promise of a national pharmacare Program got NDP MP Don Davies standing by to discuss. Will this put pressure on the Trudeau government? Where are we going to get pharmacare here in Canada? How much would it cost? Could this trigger an early election here? Let's have a listen to the NDP leader here first. This is Jagmeet Singh. Have a listen. We see billions of dollars that offshore. Uh, tax havens are sheltering, that corporations are hiding and not paying what they mm-hmm. owe to Canada. Uh, we know that's in the multi-billion dollars, more than enough to cover the plans that we're talking about. We would make different choices and make sure those who can, the wealthiest, the richest corporations, the richest of the top 1%, uh, that they contribute their fair share and we can actually make these programs a reality. We can deliver Pharmacare for All. Okay, so he says that, yeah, Pharmacare for All would be expensive, but you could make the ultra-wealthy and big business pay for it. Let's discuss with my guest, Don Davies, NDP MP for Vancouver Kingsway. Don, thanks a lot for coming on. Always great to be with you, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk about what happened here on the weekend. So this resolution passed at the NDP policy convention here to effectively pull the plug here potentially on this governing deal that you guys have with the Liberals here on Pharmacare. You support this, right? Can you explain how this would work? I do. Well, essentially, it was an emergency resolution, the the, the first one, the number one prioritized by the convention. And it was essentially to say that uh, if we don't get the Liberals to deliver on their promise to start implementing public universal pharmacare, that we would consider that to be a breach of the confidence and supply agreement and that we would uh, withdraw our support as a result. Okay, and what would that mean, an early election potentially? Well, it could. It, it, not necessarily. I mean, for, for us to uh, withdraw our support just means that we would be voting on a case-by-case, issue-by-issue basis. And, of course, it leaves the Liberals open to pursue the Bloc Québécois or the Conservatives mm. to seek confidence uh, from them. There's three potential dance partners in this parliament. So it doesn't necessarily mean an election, but it certainly would make it more likely. Okay, but you guys, fair to say that you and many of your colleagues, you guys are willing to go to the wall on this for Pharmacare, correct? 100%. Yeah. Tell me why. Can can you make the case for Pharmacare? This would be a very expensive program. (laughs) Well, it it wouldn't actually. The the funny thing is, Mike, it's very rare in in any government policy, particularly in health, where uh, by reorganizing the way we do things, we can actually save money. And uh, study after study, royal commissions, committees, advisory councils, including the one that Mr. Trudeau appointed, uh, the Hoskins Advisory Committee, which was an Ontario Liberal Health Minister to look at this, has come back eight times in a row, eight and oh, 
in favor of single-payer public pharmacare as the cheapest, fairest way to deliver pharmaceuticals. And, you know, the parliamentary budget officer, no no raging Marxist he, you know, he's a conservative <laughs> accountant, uh, 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 health economists at every university, including Steve Morgan at our own UBC, keep coming to the same conclusion by, by uh, expanding our basket of covered services to simply include pharmaceuticals, we can actually save, depending who you who you believe between four and eleven billion dollars as a nation, and ensure that every Canadian gets access. So to me, it's a policy no-brainer. Okay, well, I'm I'm taking a look at the cost estimates from the parliamentary budget officer, who said that in year one of a national pharmacare program, it could cost eleven point two billion, and then rising to thirteen point four billion. I've seen even higher estimates for the cost of this program. Man, I mean, you're talking multi-billions of dollars here. How does that save money? Okay, well, uh, you know, not to state the obvious, but pharmaceuticals aren't free. Someone's got to pay for them. So right now, uh, we have about 20% of Canadians, that's about 8 million Canadians, don't have access to any pharmaceutical coverage at all. A few million more have coverage, but it's it's uh, it's deficient. So they have, you know, co-pays or annual limits, etc. So it's not not the greatest coverage. So um, how do we pay for that now? Well, we send premiums uh, to Sun Life, to Manulife, to, to, to Great West Life, to wherever we, we have it set up. Sometimes it's businesses paying, sometimes it's individuals, employees co-share, or it's provincial governments or federal government. So right. uh, the issue is if you just shift that payer to the single payer and do it through the government, through this, the provincial medical service plans, you get streamlined administration. Instead of 100,000 extended healthcare plans in this country, you have 13. You get bulk buying. Uh, so you have the federal government procuring uh, pharmaceuticals on behalf of 40 million Canadians. That one thing, Mike, alone has been estimated to cut costs by 40% because we can actually stare down international global big pharma and negotiate lower prices. So we actually can. Uh, what will happen is instead of sending your money to Manulife, you'll send your money to the federal government and it'll be less money than we're spending now. Is there also an argument that if people have access to the pharmaceutical, the drugs that they need, the prescription drugs they need, that you could save money in the long run with better health outcomes? Because you oh, know, well, if, you, if you don't have coverage right now, maybe people will be tempted not to take the drugs they need if they can't afford them. You're bang on. Mike, there's about five different cost savings drivers of public pharmacare. One is the bulk buying, as I said. Number two is the streamlined administration, which I said. Number three is the one you just mentioned. The fancy schmancy word is cost-related non-adherence, meaning people don't get their prescriptions when they can't afford them. When you uh, take the prescriptions that you need at the time you need them, that saves the system over time money. It was estimated that one thing is about a billion dollars a year worth of savings just to keep people healthier. You know, I still remember this testimony at Health Committee, Mike, where um, someone said that if if uh, someone who's got diabetes ends up in intensive care once, that the amount of money it costs from that one visit is more than it would cost to supply them with free insulin for life. So you see, it's, it's very important to make sure that we get people their medication. Other drivers are we need more disciplined formularies you know, we've got to drive people to use generics instead of the more expensive brands, and we need better prescribing practices. So those five things will help us get control of what is a, a serious public policy concern. You know, we spend as much money on pharmaceuticals, Mike, now as we do on doctors in this country, and it's the single fastest rising 
uh, cost item in healthcare. Um, I think the Hoskins report said we would spend, uh, uh, I think it was uh, uh, $27 billion in 2019, and that'll go to $52 billion in 2027. So if we don't do something to get a handle on these rising costs and make sure that people get the medicine they need, we're, we've got a serious problem, and public pharmacare has proven time and time and time again to be the best way to do that. Speaking to NDP MP Don Davies about a national pharmacare program. So do you guys want a a universal program? Everyone would be eligible for pharmacare or would it be income tested? Universal. So the best way to describe it, Mike, is, you know, we're all familiar with our public health care system. We've got a basket of services. You go to the hospital, you know, you broke your finger, you walk in, they fix you, you know, you leave. People get paid, but it's paid through our public health care system and our regular tax dollars. Same difference if you went to the hospital and you needed a prescription, it would, it would just be covered the same way. So universal through our public system. And I wanted to say one other thing is, Mike, we've made it easy for the Liberals. What we said is, look, let's get the structure right. Let's, let's establish universal public pharmacare, but let's just bite off a manageable chunk to begin with. Let's just start with essential medication. That's about 55% of prescriptions, the most impactful ones that people have. These are your antibiotics, your insulins, your, you know, your regular heart medications, the things that most people use all the time. And that has been estimated to cost about 3.5 billion bucks a year. So let's just start there and we can grow the program incrementally over time. Okay, what is the current status of the, of the Liberal government's commitment to pharmacare? I mean, they have promised a pharmacare bill, correct? Yeah, well, up to now, Mike, I don't mind telling you that they, they just simply refuse to commit. They, uh, our, our conference agreement uh, says that they have to uh, work with us to introduce and pass legislation this year. And the first draft I got was, frankly, unacceptable. It, it didn't even mention the word single-payer pharmacare. And this is something we can't compromise on. You know, like I said, when, when the health committee that I served on, I moved the motion in 2016 to study public pharmacare. We spent two years studying it. A liberal majority health committee recommended single-payer public pharmacare. When we sent that to the Trudeau government, what did they do? They decided to kick it off and appoint their own advisor, uh, the Hoskins Advisory uh, Council. They then spent a good year looking at it, came back, recommended the exact same thing. So I don't know what the holdup is with the liberals. They're either in the pocket of big pharma or they're listening to the insurance industry, but they're not doing what they know they need to do, what they promised to do. And what they actually campaigned on, Mike, in 1997, 26 years ago. So, uh, you know, another last thing I just wanted to mention is NDP delegates at this convention sent a very strong message to this government. We want public pharmacare now. Liberal delegates said the same thing to the Liberals in 2016, in 2018, and in 2021. So, okay, if, uh, if, it would if it would save money, why, why isn't Trudeau doing it? Like, what is he, what is he a fool? He's an idiot. He's going to save money. I suggest probably they don't believe it would save money. It would cost a fortune. Well, I think they do over time, but but they know that um, it's the old problem in politics, Mike, where, you know, you invest now and you don't maybe see the benefits for five or ten years down the road. And, you know, they're not thinking beyond the next quarter or maybe saving their political hides this election. Um, but it's the right thing to do, and it will take time for the system to be implemented and save money. Um, but that's just, to me, that's wise conservative thinking is to invest, mm. invest money now for long-term savings. I don't think that they have the political guts to do it. And I think they're also, I've, I've never seen a government more in the pocket of big pharma than the Trudeau government is. Um, you know, there's, maybe it's the COVID dependency for vaccines. I don't know what it is. 
but boy, they, they're lobbied hard by big pharma. And of course, when I say save billions, where do you think they're gonna save it from? They're gonna save it out of the profits of pharmaceutical companies. Canadians pay the third highest prices in the world for pharmaceuticals. And we wanna drive those costs down to a reasonable level. And, and also make sure that everybody, your grandma, people who are out of work, uh, young people who don't have benefits at work, that they can get the prescriptions they need. To me, it's a fundamental primary health care obligation. We should be okay. ashamed of ourselves as a G7 country that we don't provide it. Okay, we're going to follow it closely. We are following it closely. Thanks for coming on today, Don. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for your time, Mike. Always like being on your show. Okay, let's talk about the battles over parking in the city of Vancouver now. And I'm talking about on-street parking in Vancouver neighborhoods. This can get a little dicey sometimes. Sometimes people will even put up pylons by the curb, try to reserve that spot for themselves. I've even seen people put up a no-parking sign near the sidewalk. Don't park in front of my home. Now, here is maybe a more common situation. You get a note on the windshield. Stop parking in front of my place. Please park somewhere else. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Andrea Wesley. Andrea is a resident of the Champlain Heights neighborhood in Vancouver, and she recently got an interesting note on her windshield. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for coming on today. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thank you for thank you for. Thank you for doing this. Now, I know in your neighborhood, it sounds like it's a bit of a merry-go-round to try and find a parking spot every day, right? It is, yes. And I actually live above a fire hall, so our building is a city building. So we actually don't have any parking for ourselves. So we do have to go to the streets um, and, and find parking on the neighboring streets. Oh, okay, so you've got to hunt around for a parking spot every day. Boy, that must be a hassle. Yes, it is. And uh, we have a mall across the street, so we're often fighting with people who are going to Starbucks. Um, oh so, like, there's a lot of in-and-out traffic that parks right in front of our building. Um, of course, it's short-term. They're just kind of parking there for about 10 minutes to grab their coffee, but yeah. it does take that parking away from us. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Andrea, tell me about this note you, that was left on your windshield. This is really interesting. Okay, so I had this note on my windshield, and I, I drove away and didn't notice it until I had kind of, like, driven a little bit away. Um, so I got out and, and checked it out, and it was immediately very suspicious looking. Uh, it said traffic department, didn't have any city of Vancouver wording on it at all. Um, it says this is a warning issued to me and my vehicle and that, you know, I'm not supposed to park there. And uh, it also had a link on there. And I thought, okay, surely this link is probably the scam. This is obviously a scam. Um, and I didn't go to the link because I know better. Uh, but I did post it on Reddit and some other people went to the link. It was a valid link, but it was a link for parking fine amounts for Vancouver, Washington. So it wasn't even the right <laughs> Vancouver. <laughs> okay, Vancouver, Washington. Now, I did take yeah. a look at your Reddit post there, and I see it's it says... It says on the note, traffic department, city of Vancouver, yeah. and it's got like a logo, like a city of Vancouver logo, right? So this was fake, mm -hmm. right? Oh, totally. And the way yeah. that it was cut, like, it looked like somebody, like, cut it with, you know, maybe preschool scissors. It wasn't even a straight <laughs> line. Um, it, yeah, it was just totally bogus. <laughs> yeah, it's bogus. And it says, okay, this is a warning to you and your vehicle. This is no parking 
and next yeah. time you will be given a ticket. So what do you? who do you think left that? Do you know who put it there? I guess not, right? I don't, but I have a suspicion that it might be somebody in one of the neighboring buildings. Um, you know, we do have... Um, a, a, we do have a lot of people that live in senior communities um, in the buildings beside me. Uh, and I do believe that that's probably who somebody, somebody, a resident that didn't want to fight for parking, just like the rest of us. But we're all fighting the same battle. And I guess this person was just a little tired of fighting the battle. Yeah, I guess they're trying to scare you out of there and say, oh, boy, the city of Vancouver's out to get me, going to give me a ticket so you don't park there anymore. But obviously didn't fool you. And now I understand you put up your own note in the neighborhood. Is that right? I did. I put a note because I, I, re- I reached out to the city of Vancouver to confirm the legitimacy, just, just in case. Yeah. Um, and they said, no, it's not from us. Um, I've been parking on the street for four years, too, so I was really surprised. Um, my vehicle isn't like a new vehicle in the neighborhood. Um, so I put my own sign up and I said, you know, dear to the traffic department, a.k.a. Karen, um, I, you know, I, I confirmed your 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 ticket is fake. And, um, you know, I have a right to park here. Get a life. And I just Get put a, a screenshot of the email from the city of Vancouver on there. And I just kind of posted it on two of the polls by where I park. Okay, that's that's very interesting, and and you're continuing to park there now. Oh yeah, I mean okay. I have to, and I and and I no. the city said that it's fine. I'm not in violation of any bylaws. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to continue parking there. What else choice do I have? I, yeah, I I can't really go anywhere else. I can't park in the mall across the street. Um, can't can't park when there's everybody's parking for Starbucks, and we've also got like Amazon trucks, construction trucks. Like we've got all sorts of people we're fighting for parking with. Yeah, is it getting tougher to find a spot? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's getting the, it, you know, the thing is, is the neighborhoods are becoming more densely populated. Um, you know, somebody made a good point um, that a lot of the, a long time ago, it was just single family homes, but you've often got these single family homes now um, with multiple residences within one, one house. And we've got a lot more new developments going up. We've got a lot of, you know, um, apartments and condo buildings that are constantly being built. And that means that the parking is going to be harder to find yeah. um, for everybody and we just kind of need to let go of this old old mentality of there's plenty of parking to go around because that's just not the reality with how densely populated we are now yeah yeah it could get worse here going forward andrea thank you for telling your story today i appreciate it a lot yeah no problem thanks for having me yeah yeah you bet thank you andrea wesley there andrea lives in the champlain heights neighborhood of vancouver and she got that fake City of Vancouver parking warning on her windshield. Let's quickly check in with Kyla Lee, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Kyla, what do you think of Andrea's story? Uh, I think it's hilarious in some respects. I've certainly, you know, I I live in a neighborhood as well where sometimes parking uh, near my residence is difficult to find. And and I've been tempted (laughs) to try and warn people who I can see are not residents to uh, not park there. But uh, I haven't got so far as to make up a fake flyer. (laughs) Yeah, so this uh, this sounds like it was a pretty... uh... Not a very sophisticated-looking fake warning here. She spotted it right away. But, you know, I've heard of other stories, like people get anonymous notes on their windshield or people people will put out pylons by the curb to try and reserve a spot. You're not allowed to do that, right? 
you are not allowed to do that. And in fact, yeah. if you were to leave debris or something like a like an overturned bucket or a pylon um, on the roadway to try and reserve your spot, in theory, you could be prosecuted. You could get a ticket for littering by leaving what is effectively oh. garbage that doesn't belong to you on the street. So don't do that because you could expose yourself to liability. Yeah. Yeah, and then I've I've also seen no parking signs. Like I saw a picture of a guy put up a no parking sign in a tree by the boulevard <laughs> just to try to save the parking spot for himself. I mean, is that that's is that illegal too? You can't put up a no parking sign Ill- illegally, right? Uh, you can't put up a sign illegally that would purport to be a city sign. I mean, because people post flyers and things like that, if you were to put something up that was obviously not erected by the city, I, I think you'd probably have an argument mm. that it was okay to post that. Um, mm. And the easiest way to see whether or not you're allowed to park somewhere is to look at the sign. Um, signs that are put up by the city of Vancouver will will follow the official signage requirements. They'll have a sticker on them to confirm that they are official city signs um, with the uh, on the back with the city logo um, and if you're at all concerned or you 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 aren't sure you can also call the city and ask what the parking restrictions are at that particular location they were talking neighborhood parking fights with kyla lee let's go to your phone calls here randy in vancouver hi randy go ahead hi mike and kyla good morning so hi. the identification of the residential lots in vancouver is clearly going to be a major addition to the parking problems, you know, four to six suites on even 20% of the lots in Vancouver with no off-street parking. Um, And then what will probably happen is that the city will then turn around and start charging people for parking in front of their own homes uh, because of the extra density. And the other thing is I'm actually a builder for multifamily um, construction in Vancouver. And Three or four years ago, you had to have at least or very close to one parking stall per unit. Right. And, and now the ratio is much lower. Yeah. Um, I'm building an 80-unit place right now, and I think we have just over 20 parking stalls. It's going to get worse. Randy, thanks for calling in. I asked Adri- I asked um, David Eby about this a while ago, Kyla, and I said, hang on a sec. You want to densify all these neighborhoods allow these multi, multi-unit multi buildings to be put up in these single-family-zone neighborhoods. What about the parking? Isn't it going to be like Carmageddon? And he said, yeah, we can't worry about that. we got a housing crisis here. We can't start fretting and pulling our hair out about parking. we got bigger problems here. What do you think of that? I think that that's a little bit short-sighted, especially because we're already seeing problems with the existing level of density. And we're, you know, when we're creating these densification projects, we're wanting to include some commercial places, which is going to drive more traffic. Um, I also, you know, specific to Vancouver, the parking bylaw in Vancouver that sets zones that, you know, allows people to have, you know, parking for residents of that block only hasn't been amended uh, since 2019. So there's a long period of time that the government has kind of just let this issue lapse and hasn't really addressed the needs of the city as there are today. Okay, back to the phone calls. Lee in Vancouver. Hi, Lee, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi, Hi. Kyla. Um, I am living in Vancouver, and our street is a side street, but it's uh, right by Main Street. And everyone who lives on Main Street wants to park on our street now. And I've left notes kindly asking people, please, you know, park on your own street. 
And uh, we're just ignored. We have no parking for ourselves anymore, and we don't even have a parking spot on our property. So is it residents-only parking there that you must live on the street to park on that street? Is that the rule? Unfortunately, no. I put out, okay. uh, um, had the city put out a, a, a sign-up sheet asking people if they would consider. And uh, they all, you know, well, not every bump, but it was rejected. And uh, people uh, now are complaining about it. Yeah. You can't win no, for trying. Thank you, Lee, for the call. I think this is going to get more and more common around Vancouver. There's a lot of these disputes going on right now. Richard in Vancouver. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Good afternoon, guys. I'd like to echo the comments of uh, your two previous callers. But uh, in residential zones, RS1, if there's such a thing left in Vancouver, um, you're not allowed to park in front of somebody's house for more than four hours between 8 and 6 p.m. But it's ironic. The, the parking problems in residential neighborhoods are usually in the evenings when everybody comes back. But anyways, the planning department and the city, and I was at that um, uh, public hearing for when they passed uh, uh, junior apartment buildings to be allowed on single family lots. And by definition, this is going to get a lot worse and worse yeah. and worse. And, sure you know, will. like the city doesn't care because, you know, they're going to actually make money out of this, like your previous caller said, because then everybody will want permit parking only, and then the city will get a whole bunch more money. It's all about money yeah, you and revenue wait. for that's... the city and the planning department. Yeah, that's probably coming. Thanks for the call. Ron in New West. Hey, Ron, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. hello, Mike. Uh, I'm a tradesperson. And, uh, for example, I just did a small job this morning. Uh, it's a five-unit uh, uh, small strata amongst two buildings. And there is zero parking for any one of the residents there. Luckily, my customer was a smart lady. She parked her vehicle on the street so she could move her car and let me slide in and get the uh, job done. But this is the oh. way it's uh, been going. We have more and more multiplexes going up, and uh, they have not provided a single parking spot for any of the residents. As far as I'm concerned, street parking is for tradesmen, delivery, and visitors. You know, if you have a vehicle, Ooh. you should park on your own property. Okay, Ron, thank you for that. Well, yeah, I can see how that would be a problem for tradespeople coming in for a job, and you can't find parking anywhere. John in Vancouver. Hi, John, go ahead. Yeah, hi, uh, good morning, uh, and enjoy the soggies. Um, yeah, the ones that really tick me off are the evil. I call them the evil, but they park in front of our house, and it seems like they want to leave the car there, well, basically until the next person wants to use the thing so uh yeah that's the that's, that's the evo evo car share program so you find some of those are they're often parked on your street oh heck yes uh they're yeah i kind of track kind of followed one he parked okay. in front of our house he could have parked across the street and not bothered anybody okay thank and you then, thank uh, you john sorry to cut you off we got out of time Kyla, we have 30 seconds here where do you think this is all going I think that ultimately, you know, if we ever get to a point where we've solved or at least mitigated to some extent the housing crisis, we're going to have to deal with a second new crisis, the parking crisis. And perhaps the the ultimate end uh, goal of this is to reduce people's reliance on vehicles. This could be a long game strategy by the city and the province. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.